You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. What's up, 26er family? Welcome to another episode of the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. I hope you all are staying safe and healthy. We are trying to do the same here on our end. So of course, we're continuing with our virtual interview series while under quarantine. And this episode features Jerry L. Barrow. Jerry is a veteran journalist with a longstanding career as both a writer and editor for a number of entertainment publications and online properties. After graduating from Wesleyan University, while he had an interest in both education and writing, Jerry chose to start his professional career as a teacher in Newark, New Jersey. But eventually, he received an opportunity to write a new artist profile for Trace magazine, which then led to more assignments for Trace. This included a review of Puff's No Way Out, a profile on the R&B group Playa, and features on Onyx and the Boot Camp Click. Even though Trace wasn't paying, Jerry caught the journalism bug, and he knew he had to quit teaching. After meeting the editor of Beatdown Magazine, Jerry decided to again work in an office for free. But paying his dues paid off. He would go on to build a formidable career at a number of outlets, including The Source, Scratch, Interactive One, and most recently, BET.com. As you can imagine, Jerry has seen and experienced a lot in an industry that has gone through significant changes over the years. And as he prepares for his next chapter, I'm so glad he took some time out to share his story with us. So please enjoy. Jerry, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. We just had a good key key before we pressed record. So I feel like this is going to be a good, good interview. <laughs> it's been a wild weekend. It's been a wild weekend. Yeah. I was, I was the highlight of my weekend was the Teddy Riley versus Babyface yes. uh, battle. I was waiting for it. The homegirls were waiting. We were set up. We had our rosé <laughs> and it was a flop. So, yeah. Oh my you, goodness. That you've was already, you've already redeemed my weekend. I can tell this is going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> So let's jump into it. Sure. Who is Jerry L. Barrow? Jerry L. Barrow is the storyteller, husband, father, son of Courtney and Gemma, West Indian immigrants, proud Brooklynite. Um, ah, I think the storyteller part is probably the most relevant because that's been how I've chosen to describe my career because it's it's not really the medium. So I started out in what we used to call print journalism. <laughs> um, way back yonder, I went to Wesleyan University, Middletown, Connecticut, studied African-American studies and American history. And while there, I oversaw the student of color magazine called The Ankh. And that's where I kind of got my first taste of you know the editorial magazine side and realizing that's something I wanted to do. But I also wanted to teach. So out of college, you know, there weren't a lot of options in 96 when I graduated, but um, my mother had told me, my mother worked at the New York Theological Seminary and she just retired a few years ago. At the time, she knew of a school that was opening in Newark uh, called St. Philip's Academy and they were looking for a first grade teacher. And I had spent a lot of time tutoring young children throughout high school. So I said, well, I'll give it a shot. I went to interview. I did a mock lesson for a room full of first graders and um, they hired me. So I said, okay, cool. I actually got a job out of <laughs> after college. So I was commuting from Brooklyn to Newark, Newark every day. This is back when they were just building NJ Pack. Mm. 
So I was walking, taking the path train from to Newark and then walking to the school about 15 minutes. And that was an experience being a, a native New Yorker, you know, walking in downtown Newark and going to the Naughty by Nature store after after school and getting naughty gear and all the other stuff. So teaching was interesting. I liked the kids, but I did like the parents. <laughs> the that parents, sounds about right. <laughs> the parents were headaches. So in the spring of 97, um, uh, one of my mentors and my fraternity brother, Smokey Fontaine, he was working at um, a magazine called Trace that was based out in London. And he said he needed some writing done. He said, do you feel like interviewing this guy? His name is Tracy Lee. I'm like, sure. So he gave me a copy of his single, The Theme. And I said, this sounds pretty cool. So we met at um, this restaurant called The Shark Bar. Mm-hmm. Which was popping back in the what? 90s. Yeah. <laughs> so you got to understand, I'm a school teacher going to meet mm-hmm. this rapper at The Shark Bar. And we spend the next hour talking about his new album and all the concepts, him working with Puffy. And he, he creates this drink called a a smackdown, which is like Hennessy, Bailey's, and Grand Marnier shaken. And I don't know how many of those we drank over the course of the interview, but I was hooked. I said, I want to do this for a living. <laughs> like, a lot better than talking to angry parents. <laughs> a lot better than talking to any angry parents and commuting to Newark and getting there um, for eight o'clock in the morning, leaving from can't see to can't see. Um, so and this was over Easter break. Um, I did this interview, went back to school. I'd already been kind of waffling on whether I w- wanted to, to come back for this second year because my life wasn't my own. As a teacher, you are not only just preparing for the week's lessons coming up, you're doing, you're looking back to the lessons you just did, the grading papers. And then I think the school was applying for accreditation. So we were doing these extra reports on what we had done for the past three months prior. So it felt like I just didn't have a life. When I was home on the weekends, I was still doing schoolwork. And then during the day, my day was pretty, even though I got out of school at three o'clock with my commute, I was getting home, you know, four o'clock, five o'clock. And then if I went to spend time with my girlfriend at the time, or if I went to the gym, it was, I just didn't have a life. I didn't enjoy elementary school teaching. So I decided I wanted to pursue writing entertainment journalism full time based off that interview with Tracy Lee. <laughs> and um, it worked out. I knew some folks who knew some folks um, at a magazine called Beatdown, and they were looking for contributors. And I, you know, freelance for a couple of indie spots. But then I got them. Back then, you had to get clips. Mm-hmm. You couldn't just run up on people and say, hey, I wrote this blog. Check out my writing. They wanted to see that you had published work. And the only way to get that was to get published in a magazine. And then you had to know somebody. Because I remember being you know, they, you talk to old industry heads, they'll talk about the slush pile, the whole pile of envelopes of people with writing samples and resumes who were trying to get, break in. So luckily, Smokey had left Trace and had started as the music editor at The Source. So once again, I came to him and say, look, I've been doing all this stuff for Beatdown. I had interviewed um, Smith & Wesson and Onyx and all these folks for Beatdown. So he saw that I got my clips up. So he said, okay. Um, I want you to go meet this rapper. He just, his song just came out on MTV. Um, you know, he seems like he's pretty crazy. Go meet with him and his manager. 
to do this interview, they had a section in the source called Mike Check for a new artist. Mm-hmm. So this artist was Eminem, Marshall Mathers. So I go to meet Eminem and his manager, Paul Rosenberg, and I do this interview. And it was my first published clip in the source. And not knowing, not realizing this guy was going to turn out to be like the biggest <laughs> rapper in the world. Um, so I did a couple of those types of interviews for Smokey and then for another editor when Smokey left. I forget where he went from there. But um, I'm telling the long version of this. So after I, Memphis Bleak, um, Rozelle from The Roots, I did a couple of these new artist features. And then a staff position came up. Um, I applied for it, didn't get it that time. So I just kept, you know, working, working, freelancing. And then um, trying to remember the the chronology, I was um, working in advertising at one point. Uh, as an assistant, which was, I wanted to be on the creative side, but I was on the account side. So I was dealing with those green and white spreadsheets with the whole (laughs) (laughs) and basically having to manage the budgets for all the creative people Mm -hmm. would be helpful. But I saw how much money things cost and how much they were spending. And I had to, um, they had overtures in some sections and didn't spend enough in others. So I had to kind of move money around. Because it was basically a use it or lose it um, situation with the budgets. So if we hadn't spent enough in a certain place, I had to tell them, okay, take the money from here, put it over here, and keeping track of all of this. I, I had named the spreadsheet the Manhattan Project. It was just a nightmare. <laughs> it was so far from what I wanted to be doing. And as um, as um, fate would have it, just as I was um, getting ready to leave for a website um, that was being launched. I um, I was going to be let go. My boss was getting replaced. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the boss, I, the person I was reporting to was being replaced by someone else. And, you know, when people come in, they have their own assistants. The changing of the guards the in the industry the is crazy, yes. Mm-hmm. So lucky. So right around the same time, I was getting my acceptance to work on this website called volume.com. And this is where Smokey and a bunch of other um, industry folks, my friend Riggs Morales, who's A&R at Atlantic Records now, he had left the source to come there because he had felt like he had gotten as far as he could go at the source. And a lot of the print folks were going to digital. So this is this is Web 1.0. In and what year was this? 2000. This okay. 2000. And I remember because... Well, this is 99, 2000, because um, into 2000, because we were creating content, preparing for launch. And now remember, this is pre-WordPress, pre-high-speed internet, pre-all of that. So prepare, building the websites was way more involved. People were making lots and lots of money to build really basic websites. Yes. No one else knew how to code. So if you knew a, a minimum of HTML in 1999, you could bank <laughs> you can really mm-hmm. take off so everybody's building websites but not everybody knows what people are going to actually consume because everyone's still at home on dial-up but they're building these big heavy video driven sites you know like russell simmons had one it was on 360 hip-hop and, and then there was another one called hook.com and we were all just feeling real excited about the internet and what we could possibly do but um in this summer of 2000, I was, we were, a bunch of us were laid off because Volume was owned by HBO and then HBO 
I think there was a merger between AOL and Time Warner mm-hmm. that just got everybody, you know, out of there. So there was this huge round of layoffs. The site eventually launched later with about a fraction of the crew. But um, I met a lot of cool people there, had got a lot of experience, and then ultimately ended up on staff at the source um, in, I want to say, 2002. Mm-hmm. Um, and there I was the, started as associate music editor, went to music editor, features editor. And by the time I left, I was deputy editor. And that was a lot, a very, very interesting time um, because I learned a lot about maintaining contacts in the industry and, you know, developing myself as a writer and an editor and um, did some really interesting stories there, did a Nas cover, did a Ludacris cover, um, just really having a ball and wishing that there were things like iPhones and mm-hmm. <laughs> things back then, wishing there was Instagram back then um, to report to, I wish I had taken more pictures. Yeah. I did back then. So things got a little crazy at the source. I was there during the whole upheaval. The irony of me, of Eminem being my first piece is we went through the whole drama with Eminem and the source then hit them. Um, I think someone had found the tape of him calling black women bitches. And mm-hmm. instead of like making it a story or going to Eminem's camp and saying, hey, we have this tape. Do you have a response? Benzino and them had this whole vendetta against the, the industry. They felt like and this was indicative of what was wrong with hip hop. Now, granted, there were a lot of things wrong with the music industry, but this felt like scapegoating. And it just turned into a real nightmare for us there because um, slowly but surely, a lot of the labels stopped messing with us because, Mm -hmm. you know, we stopped getting access to certain people because if you're going after Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre and calling them out and they're the heads of the biggest label in the industry, what do you think is going to happen? All of a sudden, I'm calling the publicist saying, hey, I'd like to get so-and-so for cover and it's like, we can't give you that. Like, Mm -hmm. what what about a feature? Nope, nope. (laughs) <laughs> Nothing. So I eventually got a lifeline because um, I had been pivoting towards covering producers more while I was there. I'd done some pieces where I had like Ninth Wonder interview Pete Rock and some other cool stuff. And um, I was always more interested in how music got made, how albums got made, and wasn't as much into the drama. But the drama is what sold magazines. Mm-hmm. Um but I got an opportunity to kind of focus on just the making of the music when I found out that this magazine called Scratch was looking for a new editor. Scratch was um, being published out of Harris Publications, um, which published Double XL and Slam and um, a bunch of other books. And I think Scratch had been like six issues in and they were looking for a new editor. The previous editor had left and I was like, I went to interview and I said, listen, I love hip hop. I love producers and DJs and sampling and all that stuff. But I also understand that you have to do certain things to sell magazines. Mm-hmm. So they felt like the magazine had been so hardcore, just producers and not realizing that it was a newsstand publication. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of producers weren't known back then by face right now now it's a little very different, different. Yeah. very different now like people know who mike will made it is and you know but back then and even their their first six or seven covers were, were also producers who were also artists 
So it was Dr. Dre, Timbaland, Kanye, Pharrell. So even though they were producers, they were still artists that were recognizable. And I got there and I said, well, what about such and such and such and such? And these guys are huge producers right now. Why aren't they on the cover? And my first cover was Just Blaze, mm. who I felt just sonically was one of my favorites and deserved to be on the cover of this magazine. So I had done a few covers like that. Um, I think after Just Blaze, I'd done Swiss Beats, Jermaine Dupree, and a few, I forget a few others, but they were like, listen, these are cool, but they're not selling. <laughs> my boss was just on my neck that listen we're, and, and, and as it is we only came out bi-monthly so it's a, it's hard to imagine now with this daily news cycle right but we were coming out every other month so we had all this kind of downtime in between issues where we were just getting things together and so then an issue drops and then you get the numbers back maybe a month later and they're like listen these these are we got to do something we got to shake it up and i was like okay I've been wanting to get DJ Premier on the cover for the longest because he's DJ Premier. And they're like, well, if you get DJ Premier, can we get DJ Premier and Jay-Z? And I'm like, wait, what? Huh? What? How? <laughs> but, you know, I asked. I was cool with the publicist at Def Jam at the time. We had done some stuff together. I put in the ask. She's, I don't think Jay-Z had a new album out at the time. So she was like, it really doesn't make sense for him. And I said, all right. Um... I knew the publicist at Columbia, Tony Ferguson, um, and I said, do you think Nas would be down? And he was like, let me ask his manager. And they were like, yeah, doing a cover with Nas and Premier. So then I once Nas confirmed, I went to Premier's people like, hey, we want to get you on a cover, but would you be opposed to sharing it with Nas? And Premier was like, hell no, nah, I wouldn't be opposed to that. <laughs> so so it's, it was a dual purpose. It wasn't just let's talk about Nas the premiere and the dope songs they've done together. There had been a talk of them doing a joint album for the longest where it was just all premiere produced tracks. And I said, well, let's get that started. Let's because what I was competing against is I couldn't compete with the source and double XL for like when an artist album was coming mm-hmm. with the big dogs, right? You know, vibe, I couldn't compete if 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 rapper X that was really big at the time was coming out with an album. I couldn't get them for a scratch cover because they would probably go to the bigger pubs first. So I had to. I was constantly having to think ahead. I had to kind of make things. <laughs> right. Um, and it, I, yeah. And I think why that's interesting is because now is it's commonplace for these like joint interviews with a producer and an artist or a producer interviews the artist or vice right. versa. Right. Um, yeah. That's something you see all the time now. But back then, mm-hmm. that wasn't yeah. really heard of. Except for Interview Magazine, you really didn't yeah. see that. Right. So we pulled it, we managed to pull this cover off. But what made it even more exciting is right around that time, Nas and Jay-Z squashed their beef. Mm. So we had already started our car. We were already in the process of creating our cover. We had the concept. We wanted to recreate the whole Illmatic era vibe. My good friend um, Arlene dialed it for us and found the army jacket for Nas. And it was crazy. Shot it at the old D&D, which was renamed headquarters after Premier's late friend. And on top of that moment, then Nas and Jay-Z squash their beef so then mm-hmm. i got on the, I, I said tony i gotta get i gotta talk to Nas about squashing his beef with jay like we gotta get that in there so managed to do a follow-up so i pretty much got the first 
cover of Nas talking about squashing the beef. Mm. It was a big coup, but then it also kind of made the hardcore producer community upset because it didn't have as much, it didn't have anything to do with production. Mm-hmm. And it kind of overshadowed the Nas and Premiere um, coming together. Um, so, you know, you take the good with the bad. You know, one of the things I, I, I said in being that ambitious and trying to make things happen, you're not going to please everyone. And I tried to please folks as much as I could, but it was either please some of the hardcore constituents and lose the mag or compromise and keep the mag going. And I just chose to compromise where I could to keep the mag going. Um, so ultimately did some great work there, made some life, you know, lifelong friends with my colleagues at Scratch, but ultimately they wanted to go in another direction. My, my editorial director moved to another title. They brought in another editorial director. He wanted to bring in someone else to run the mag. So I was out. Um, so let's pause. Let's pause here. Yeah. There, there's there's a theme, right? Which anybody mm-hmm. who works or has worked in media and entertainment knows, right? That mm-hmm. anytime there's a change in direction or a change in leadership, oftentimes whatever collective has been under this person who's at the helm also gets pushed out, right? Yeah. Which you alluded to um, earlier. But mm-hmm. also um, there's another piece of this that I think is important to note, because I think we're start, we're about to go through it again, um, yeah. given where we are in the world, but also things changing in the media landscape. Yeah. And as a result, opportunities that were there not not being there. And I definitely want to talk about um, in this interview when how the dot-com bubble bursting affected urban media for sure. Um, yeah. but, but let's go back, right? And um, because one of the things that we love to do on the show is talk about some of the tactical elements too, of people kind of realizing their dream and following their passions. Now, Trace was un- unpaid. So you were just writing, going to fly restaurants, getting good meals, but that right. was unpaid. Yes. That was and then Beatdown was unpaid as well, right? It was unpaid, but that wasn't what they told me. See, I didn't have any issues with Trace being unpaid because Smoke told me up front, I got no money. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I was like, okay, I just want the experience. I want the clips. Um, beat down. <laughs> um, shout out to Trent Fitzgerald. Um, he was working with, with working there as well as the, the editor was a brother named Haji. And he told me, yeah, we'll get you a stipend. We'll get you this, you know, help you with the trend. Cause I was, they were based in Long Island city and I was, um, commuting from Brooklyn and, you know, I, I was still living off of my last teacher's checks because I had opted for a 12 month payout instead of a 10 month. So I wasn't pressed for money, but I said, all right, I'll take, you know, whatever you can give me at least to cover my commuting expenses. And it just never happened. So <laughs> okay, fine. Um, I'm sorry. I've lost track of what you were asking me to talk about. We were talking about you just working and doing this unpaid, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. So mm-hmm. back then, unpaid was really just the only option for sometimes because, you know, people wanted to see what you could do before they would actually pay you. Um, so the, the, the beatdown stuff wasn't intentionally unpaid, but I was never paid for it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, so you're doing this work, you got the teacher thing going, but decide, did you leave, by the time you got the feature with Eminem, had you left teaching altogether? Yeah, it already, okay. yeah. Oh, yeah, left, but, right? yeah, that was like two years later. All right, so I remember, I'm a little bit younger, so I was in high school mm-hmm. when Eminem came out, late 90s, right? right? Mm-hmm. And I remember being in class and somebody coming in class and being like, have you heard this dude Eminem? Right? <laughs> you gotta remember, this is like pre cell phone, you know, like uh-huh. people were just 
starting to get a couple people had sidekicks, but like there was no data. <laughs> there was no, like you caught it on TRL, you caught stuff on 106 in part, but that was it. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I don't know who this is, whatever. And they were like, he's talking about the craziest stuff. Like he's this white boy out of the Midwest. Like, it's just crazy. Mm-hmm. He's like, it's out of, out of control. And I remember maybe like that night going on to um, MTV or whatever, watching MTV and seeing the whatever that first video was hi my name is you know, my name is yep. yeah my name mm-hmm. is. and being like what is this <laughs> like, i just thought like it was a parody of hip-hop like i didn't i didn't really get it at the time but everybody else seemed like people you know the boys in high school especially were like no he's about to be the biggest you know the biggest mm-hmm. thing ever a lot of people didn't look like me but anyway in that interview did you say to yourself like so at that point he had already gotten the buzz right and dean mm-hmm. was working him to you but did you say to yourself this interview is about to change my career no i didn't because we were so spoiled back then mm-hmm. what you have to understand is eminem was pretty much the norm for mcs mm-hmm. he was great but he wasn't something that you said okay this is i'm trying to choose my words carefully because i don't want to make it seem like he wasn't special because he was but the 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 bar had been so high back then that this was expected. Someone who would make it into the source was supposed to be that good. So in that sense, yeah, of course we'd be covering this guy. He's dope because remember he had a battle rapper pedigree and had been gotten more buzz that way. And the, mm-hmm. the My Name Is was the more commercial side of him, but people knew he could rap. Um, but did I think it was going to change my career? No, I was happy because it was my first published clip in the source. Like, oh my God, it was more like, I've been reading this magazine for so many years and I got my name in there. Smile, when my, mom, my, my mom smiled when she said my name up in the source was a real thing for me. So did I feel like it was changing my career, but I knew things were changing. Mm-hmm. And to answer your question, I knew that I was finally, you know, heading in the direction that I needed to be headed in and getting paid for it. That was the big difference between the trace work and the <laughs> the source work I actually got to check. Right. So, okay. So we're you, to the point that you mentioned brings me to the next question that I have. Um, that, that was hip hop's golden era. Right. Mm. And so my background is in legal, right? So right, I've, right. I've spoken to um, entertainment lawyers who were working during that time. Mm. Uh, shout out to Reggie Osei. RIP was a huge oh, mentor man. to me when I first came to the city with interest oh. in the entertainment business. Um, but one of the things that he would talk about a lot is like back then, you know, the deal was what it was, but there was so much money kind of being thrown around that you, mm-hmm. could, you knew you could put a contract together for an artist. Right. Um, you knew it was going to be a big budget for videos, etc. I don't think people were really thinking that much about the long term piece no. around publishing and stuff like that. But a lot of money and advances were being were being thrown around. Um, so with that being said, doing these interviews, um, was there any sense of humility with these artists or was was it in the thick of just that celebrity where people feel like you should just feel fortunate that you get to talk to me? <laughs> it was mixed. Okay. It was, it, when I started out, because I was um, speaking with mostly new artists, there was mm-hmm. still a level of humility. Um even though they may have been attached to some of the biggest names. Like when I spoke to Memphis Week for his mic check, there was no sense of, it was the typical rapper cockiness, mm-hmm. confidence, but not a sense of, oh, you, um, you know, I'm bigger than you because remember, I'm interviewing you for the source. And right. for them back then, that was it. They were the Bible. all yeah. too happy to, um, 
to be in this source. And I think I'm, my timelines are off, but I, I was freelancing for them a little bit before I came on staff. And I went to, they had another section that was kind of like, not quite mic check, but it was for more indie artists. And I went to Brooklyn to interview this MC called Bad Seed. And that was so much fun because I went to his house. It wasn't at the record label. It wasn't at the record label office in this sterile environment. Um, so he had this sense of appreciation, like, yo, the source is here to interview me in my house. This is, and it was just like a one third strip article in the magazine. But back then it didn't matter. You were in the source. So I don't recall folks really having that sense of I'm too good for you until it's, until they've gotten to a certain level when you're trying to do the cover story now. And now they're just like, they're watching their words. They've been in the magazine a couple of times. They know how sometimes things get misconstrued Mm -hmm. and they're a little bit more sensitive um, about what they're saying. So there's a little bit of distance there, Um, but never outright. I can't can't say I ever ran into any artists that were outright, I'm too good for you because I would not have gotten to that point of meeting them if they felt like they didn't want to do it the interview just wouldn't have been scheduled. Yeah. And and I'm kind of jumping ahead of myself now, but it's irrelevant, I think, topic to bring up here because now we're in an age where, you know, back then it was TV that might've broken an artist or radio or mm-hmm. a, a magazine where you're introduced for the first time. Now we're in a situation where an artist is not dropping mixtapes where like their neighborhood knows them first, right? Like mm-hmm. Staten Island knew Wu-Tang first, right? Or right. You know, something like that. Now you have the internet where these kids could have a million followers online mm-hmm. before they ever release, commercially release a project, right? Because of SoundCloud or whatever. So um, which they often equate with clout because right. they've got these followings before, you know, they blow up. The first person I can remember kind of doing that, and I could be wrong, I'm not the, I'm clearly not the hip-hop expert here, mm-hmm. is Soldier Boy, right? With MySpace, mm-hmm. and like, he had this whole thing that happened before he really became a rapper in the commercial sense. Um, But now, you see that every day. These people end up on the radio, and I'm like, I don't even know who this is. And then some 19-year-olds, <laughs> what do you mean you don't know who they are? Million <laughs> Instagram followers, this many people on SoundCloud. Um, right. But do you think that something has been lost in that and the way the industry has changed when back then it was a big deal for the source to to feature you um, or mm-hmm. to get into these these magazines or to be buzzworthy on MTV. But now it's this this fame on the internet that could happen before your commercial success happens. I see there again, I'm, I'm, I'm of two minds. Like I don't begrudge the kids being able to find things in their own way. And sometimes it's SoundCloud the algorithms, the algorithms serve up artists for me on Spotify that I mm-hmm. otherwise wouldn't have heard of. But basically because of my listening history, they'll say, hey, you might like so-and-so. And I'm perfectly fine with that being a mode of discovery. However, I still do think we need um, professionals to get the story out about the artist in the right way. Because if you follow this person on social media, you're still only getting a curated version of them. They're giving you the pieces that they feel like sharing. And there might be a whole other story about that person that you might not find out. Like, I didn't find out till years later that who's it, Little Yachty's father was someone in the industry. Mm-hmm. And that kind of helped shed light on how he broke out the box and how what his influences were. But if you just followed him on social media, you wouldn't have known that. But it took an actual article coming out in 
you know, doing some digging. And I think that part is still necessary. I was having a similar conversation with a, uh, an artist turned podcaster, um, Double O, the other day. And he was asking me if, the, if, it's, if we still need these, these gatekeepers. And I said, in some instances, yes, because some of these artists are, are, are jumping out the window on social media and they need someone to feed them what to say <laughs> in some cases. And they need someone to curate their story and they need someone to put their story in context. That's the part where me being a storyteller and historian, I think is still needed because hearing someone's quote without knowing their history, right. what they've been through, you're doing yourself and them a disservice, you know, because the same thing said by two different people can come across two totally different ways if you know their story and what their context and what their intent was. And the internet doesn't is a, is a, doesn't believe in intent. <laughs> you can't right. read intent in a tweet. So yeah, yeah. So I guess yeah, Loyati's father is a famous photographer, right? Yeah. in Atlanta. I I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> at yeah. all. Um, but but. Diverging back to to your story, so mm-hmm. you are sort of changing sort of the climate at Scratch mm-hmm. um, to keep the the commercial side alive. Yes, yes. That's not necessarily working out long term. So no. yeah. So then, what happened? Where'd you go from there? Okay, so after leaving Scratch, I think I was either freelancing for a while, but then I ended up linking back up with Smokey. He was running a magazine called Giant, Mm -hmm. um, which was kind of his version of Vibe. And they were doing some um, digital partnerships with um, Interactive One. And then Giant and Interactive One formed some type of a partnership where they launched um, a website called The Urban Daily in 2008. And it was originally supposed to be a newsletter, which is why I was named that way, the Urban Daily. It was supposed to be like a competitor for EUR Web, if you're familiar with yes. um, Lee Bailey's EUR Web. So they had a social network they were building called On One um, that was supposed to be where all the content was supposed to live. It was really ahead of its time in the sense of you see how publishers have become dependent on Facebook to get their content out. Yeah. The idea was to create a social network that we could feed our articles and our content to. But then they um, acquired Black Planet. Mm. And so they were like, well, why do we need to build our own social network when we have one right here? So they scrapped the on one thing and it went full, full blast with Black Planet. And yeah, I was there at the Urban Daily from... 2008 to 2014. And again, I got a lot of interesting experience in terms of digitals, digital 2.0 for me now. Um, it's, it's the WordPress era. Everybody's got a blog. Twitter is just starting. It's, it's, it was a very different Twitter than what it is now. Um, Facebook, again, was still just kind of still new. So we were all learning as we went, trying to adjust to this new daily cycle for news and entertainment. Mm-hmm. And our content was being fed out to all of the 50 radio station sites and for Radio One. So we were actually acting as kind of an AP for all the radio DJs. So it was bugged to hear my articles being read on the air in different markets. And I was doing voiceover work and, you know, I got I was doing my first movie junkets, you know, for like Best Man Holiday and all this other stuff. So I was getting my feet wet with the with the film stuff back then too. So yeah, that's what I did after scratch. So 
this things are changing in the sense that the the more pervasive the internet got. Like, you know, sometimes I think about like back when people used to search stuff on Ask Jeeves, like <laughs> where we are today. Remember when, like it was just that there wasn't, um, it was dial up, right? There wasn't Google in the way that it is today. And then the websites, when people's websites started to your earlier point, um, these webs, like I feel like most websites look exactly the same now, right? Most people, it's just WordPress, same kind of clean layout. But mm-hmm. back then people had Flash. It was a lot <laughs> going on, right? Um, but as things have progressed and it's been, you know, it's a requirement now that you're on that 24 seven news cycle, constantly turning out as a writer and as a journalist, how did that make you feel like going from being able to really work on an article and and get to perfection to now it's like, we just need to get it out there. We've got to get on the radio. This is happening. Write, write something and, and, and make it happen. It's exhausting. Um, I spent a lot of time doing write-arounds of TMZ stories at the mm. Urban Daily, it was really, it was really um, damaging to my spirit because you could spend hours interviewing someone, transcribing it, putting it up, and it would get a fraction of the clicks of something that you just kind of warmed over from TMZ and put out there. And that's what's getting all the traffic. And it was hard. It would, you, like you said, when I was working in print, we would, I would get a couple days with an album to write a review before the, before the album even came out. Now the album comes out at midnight. You, if you don't have a review up by two o'clock the next day, you're late. Mm-hmm. You got people doing one list in album reviews. And that to me, I mean, they're, they're great to read. Shout out to Yo. Um, but I just, I can't do that. That's not how I'm wired. Like I can do it with a movie, you know, I see a movie once I can write a review based on my notes, but an album music is just a different feeling. I, I have to listen to that more than once. But so, yeah, it, it was a really hard adjustment to the daily news cycle, but I tried to hold on in some instances to my old training. For example, when Miss Melody passed away from BDP, mm-hmm. I didn't want to just, I just, I saw people tweeting about it and I had learned that you don't just run with tweets as stories, which is what is becoming the norm. So-and-so tweeted it, so it must be true. You got to take the time. And I knew some people who knew some people in her family. Um, a friend of mine, Big Seth Thornton, um, he's an OG in this whole thing. Um, he knew people, he knew Red Alert, who knew Miss Melody's people. And he confirmed for me that she actually passed away. So I waited for that. Was I the first person up? With the story, no, but I felt better knowing that I took the time to confirm that it was really true because I remember when Heavy D passed, there were some early tweets that went out that um, I don't know if he hadn't passed yet or some folks had kind of jumped the gun and some members of his family didn't know yet. So I didn't feel comfortable just running with that story. So those, and another last example of that, there was something crazy with Young M.A., this co- this company had come out with a Young M.A. Hennessy bottle. <laughs> oh, God. Back, like, back in like 2014, 2015, I forget. I was at this, I was running a site called Watch Loud. And this story was bubbling on the internet about a Young M.A. Hennessy bottle. And everybody was itching to po- be the first ones to post about it. And I said, this doesn't seem legit at all. And Young M.A. hadn't been, everybody was, you know, 
watching her Twitter feed to see if she would comment. She hadn't commented. I have a friend who works at Hennessy in the marketing department. And I reached out to her and said, yo, is this legit? And she was like, let me find out and get back to you. So I'm sitting there. She might have gotten back in like maybe an hour. But for my staff, that was the longest hour of their lives because everybody else online is posting stories and tweeting but they don't have any real confirmation of what it is or if it's a legit Hennessy thing. And I wanted us to be able to say definitively whether this was a re- the real deal or not before running anything. Because then by then we would have been like the fifth story saying the same thing. That's right. not why I got into this. Finally, she hits me back. She's like, no, we have nothing to do with that. Blah, 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 blah. So I'm like, okay, here it is. Here's the quote from the Hennessy rep. Get the story up. And people actually were like, yo, watch loud. Good looking out for actually taking the time to confirm whether this was real or not. And other people started linking back to us and quoting us or what have you. But to do that on a daily basis would be really hard because you're losing so much time waiting for those confirmations for the, you know, when you're doing actual legwork. And meanwhile, the metrics and the algorithms are rewarding the people who get their stuff up first. You have people who literally post an article with two sentences just because they want to get that Google search crawl. (laughs) The headline happened, you know, RIP to Kobe Bryant. When Kobe passed, no one had any details. Um, His wife didn't even know yet. Mm-hmm. but they had the TMZ story and that's all that mattered to them. And they put it up and then they just added the details later. And for me, even now that hurt my heart to do it that way because I knew something fell off. I'm like, how is it TMZ has this reported and no other ra- radio? And I said, Oh, they must've gotten the flight manifest. Mm-hmm. And Kobe was on the flight. And I'm like, damn, I bet you his wife don't even know yet. And they just, because the local, the local Los Angeles newspaper, all they had, their website only had a crash. Right. They had a crash report. That was it. And I was like, how did they know that Kobe was on the flight? I said, oh, they looked at the manifest and, and then it came out that his daughter was on there. Oh, it was a rat. So that's why I'm just a little bit more sensitive to the expediency versus waiting, you know, long so- Speaking of that, like I, I, I remember the day when it all came out and, and someone, I was with a bunch of friends and some, one of us said, well, if it's on TMZ, mm-hmm. a good chance that it, it, it really is, is true. And it's crazy that they've become this, this source for, in sort of this rabid manner, getting information and putting it out there. But as someone who really stands by the tenets of integrity um, and accuracy in this industry that is rapidly changing, where it is about the clicks and, and everything else. How do you maintain that and sustain a career when you are competing um, with this microwave mentality of like, we want information, we want it now? I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know if I am maintaining a career anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My tenure at, the, at BET.com ended this week. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had been focused primarily on original interviews and um, articles based on information I was getting from the source. And that is a time-consuming exercise. It's a long lead exercise. It's the type of thing you have to do to plan ahead. It still can be done well, but you have to have a brand that's committed to doing that um, because it's not always going to result in the same numbers as I always like to say, um, Rick Ross tripping down some stairs. You know, (laughs) at the Urban Daily, there was one year where I think the top story for the month or for the six months was a video of Rick Rick Ross tripping on stage. And you can't, you can't, 
You know, you look at the top stories for the year and it's like, um, who was the young woman that Kanye was dating um, before Kim Kardashian? Um, Amber Rose. Amber Rose. Mm -hmm. Amber Rose something. There was something with Amber Rose bearing some part of her body that was like the top that and then the Trina sex tape. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it actually did come out or it was a rumor of a sex tape with Trina was the top story. So that would beat out if you did an actual interview with Trina, <laughs> you know, talking about her music. So that's it's frustrating. And I can't honestly say that it's you can can you maintain a career? Yeah, you can, but it's hard. Yeah. So I definitely want to talk about how you got to BT.com and what has happened and what is happening uh, to a lot of people across industries. Mm. Um, But I know you've lived through this before and we mentioned it briefly, but, you know, talking about that first dot com bubble bursting. And at the time, I mean, I heard stories um, of people who were like, yeah, I was supposed to start like this urban media company. Mm. And it just all blew up. Like, yeah. that was it. I thought I had a job. I didn't. So what was that time like for you? That time was crazy mm-hmm. because, like I said, a lot of the va- valuations of things were higher than they should have been. Mm-hmm. And then the companies consolidated and they realized that, that n- not everybody can compete in the same space. We have way too many people um, to do to run this one thing. And it was a mess up time for me. Can you hear me okay? I'm in my basement. So yes. my, my oil burner just kicked in. So <laughs> no worries. Listen, we're we're doing this raw and rugged these days. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Just wanted to make sure. Um, yeah, so it was really wild because that a few months before when I got laid off, I was getting married uh in October. So this was what June or July mm. of 2000 where I got laid off and I had a wedding coming up. And we had just moved into our apartment in Brooklyn on Flatbush. So I'm stressed, mm-hmm. beyond stressed. And, um, you know, we survived, obviously. We still, you know, got married. We, we, we cut, cut budgets and cut corners and did what we had to do. But it was a really stressful time. But folks rallied around me. Um, I got referrals from work. There were, a couple, there were other sites that were still afloat. Had money. One of them was UBO, Urban Box Office, and they were playing. They were paying ridiculous amounts of money for articles back then. So I was work, writing for them. And a friend of mine, Chuck Creekmer from All Hip Hop, he'd been working at um, Beatdown, and Beatdown, um, he had left and said, "Hey, there's an opening there if you want it." And I went to Beatdown and interviewed, and I was working there. I so <clears throat> was there for like maybe eight or nine months before leaving for the source, getting the full time source gig. Um, but yeah, that time was crazy. That time was. Yeah. And and here we are now again, um, where I think for me coming into 2020 now and, and people, if if people are longtime listeners of the show, they know I was talking about this, like in 2018, moving into 2019, where I feel like I felt like we were moving into an economic downturn, um, and, and preparing for that. But it didn't happen in any way that I thought. Right. Um, And so quickly, like what we're experiencing because of a pandemic and our administration's delayed response to that pandemic. Um, And I think uh, obviously we've had a lot of people on the show who are creatives, who work in media and entertainment and events and this and that and music. I did. I was blindsided by how quickly I started seeing reports of layoffs at Mm. various outlets at. Um, networks, you know, Live Nation, all these different companies. When you saw this 
was going down, considering what you've seen in your career. Uh Did you anticipate this? I anticipated what was happening for a couple of different reasons. Part Mm -hmm. of it was because I know how interconnected everything is. Mm -hmm. um, And you can't function as a company if you can't be around people, especially in entertainment. Uh, The lifeblood of entertainment is being able to meet up in person, to do interviews, to have festivals, to um, do screenings of movies, the and especially with film and television, even though they would tell us, they would send us links sometimes to watch online, they preferred for us to go and see things in person in the theaters. I was supposed to see that new movie In the Height right before this broke out. I was getting ready to take my daughter to see um, Disney, um, the, the Lion King on Broadway, um, right before they shut down on Broadway. Um, there were a lot of things that were in the works, but I didn't expect everything to shut down quite so abruptly. In terms of layoffs, I, I, I was bracing myself for layoffs at Viacom once the Viacom-CBS merger went through. It had gotten held off because of some issues with, I think, the former head of CBS getting into some trouble. But then they finally put that through. And we knew that across these, you know, Viacom and CBS, there were redundancies. Two two large media companies, cuts were coming. We didn't think as many cuts would be coming to BET because the CBS didn't have a BET equivalent. Mm -hmm. But they, I think in a lot of ways, they use COVID as a cover to cut people that they had planned, to make cuts that they had planned on making media further down the line. So yeah, it's been, the last thing I did before things really got bad was a junket in LA where I interviewed Winston Duke for that Mark Wahlberg movie he did. And at that point, this was maybe first weekend of March, there was just still bubbles of, you know, Corona, Corona, Corona. And I remember asking him, you know, like, how do you deal with home, home remedies and what have you? And it was a fun question. It wasn't really, things hadn't gotten serious yet, but I do remember at the end of that interview, we didn't shake hands. (laughs) gave me the polite fist bump and a lot of artists do that too but it was definitely noticeable now because mm-hmm. we had just finished talking about germs and pandemics and i think he was like yeah maybe i'm not going to shake hands today <laughs> um so and then on the flight back i remember in lax i had that thing called clear where you can kind of just skip the the line yeah and usually you put your two fingers on the on the terminal to touch to, to scan your fingerprints, but I, there was a sign up already saying, we're going to do retina scans today for that. So I had to look into the thing. They didn't want you touching anything. I remember buying some wipes at the airport to wipe down my tray and my mm-hmm. armrest and everything when I got on a flight. And when I landed, there was a definitely, when I landed back in New York, there was definitely a different air. Um, the, the cafeteria at work was only serving... Um, Pre-packaged food, the mm-hmm. salad bar was closed. Nothing that required too much exchange of hands was out. Things, and then maybe within a week, they were like, "Yeah, everybody work from home." Yeah. And then, and then just this week, I was on the phone with Gina Prince Bythewood for the Love and Basketball 20th anniversary, which is this coming Tuesday, the 21st, and I literally got off the phone with her and, and got a call from my boss saying that I had been let go. So that's, that's how, that's how quickly things have, have escalated. And then that same day, I think my good friend, um, Daytuan Thomas at Vibe, he had lost the majority of his staff because they had, I think 15 and then six, and then they cut it down to like two people. Wow. So it's a lot. Everybody's going through it and we're not done. Unfortunately, we're not done. So having 
navigated this previously through various iterations of the industry um, for a number of reasons, economic, you know, this changing of the guards, what have you, have you, and, and, and now going through this again. And I agree with you that we're not done. When you hear that, like, people are postponing their tours mm-hmm. by a year, postponing movie premieres by a year, yep. um, it's it's it can be frightening. What are you feeling as someone who's career has already been impacted and sort of weighing where your options might be moving forward in the near term? Um, interestingly enough, I'm a little optimistic because I've been here before. I know how bad it can be. And I think I'm in a better position now than I was when I'd lost positions in the past because I have a slightly higher profile Literally, people were calling me and reaching out to me to do podcasts almost immediately like yours. Mm -hmm. So part of it is because everybody's home. (laughs) So um, I I don't feel the fear I did then, I guess, because I didn't know what I was capable of. Now I know what I can do to just get things done. Thankfully, my son is a genius and he's his first year of college is paid for thanks to scholarships and knock on wood, if he can actually step foot on campus this September, he'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, I, I, I am a little bit relieved mm-hmm. because I wasn't happy at BET towards the end. Um, and now I, ha- I can take a chance, I can take some time to kind of figure out what I want to do Mm-hmm. That has to do with me and what I want to do um, professionally. That's not a compromise because I was in a t- like like I said I was in a tough spot when I started at BET. It was it 2017. Both I and my wife were out of work, which is a very scary position mm-hmm. to be in. And um, you asked how I got there. My a good friend of mine who I'd worked with at the source, Jermaine Hall, he was the editor of the site and. I was pitching him for freelance work and I was on the site just looking to see what they had done so I wouldn't repeat what they already had to come up with some pitches. And I noticed an error in one of the articles and I hit him up saying, hey, um, I just noticed that there was this, you know, it was a Friday evening. And I said, you know, I just wanted you to know that there was this error in the article. You should have someone change it. Was it a factual error or like a yeah, okay. it was a factual error. Um, it was an article about Red Man and it said that something was his second album, but it wasn't. And I was like, that's definitely not his second album. Um, he was like, oh, yeah, it was after hours, you know, freelancers. They probably didn't. I don't know what what, what excuse he gave, but in telling me that he he know he did mention that they were down an editor that the, uh, one of the entertainment editors um, had recently left, but they hadn't posted any kind of a job description or, or job posting. So I said, well, if you're looking for someone in the meantime, uh, I'd be interested. And he said, really? And it was, it, the position was a little bit under, it was, I don't like to say beneath, but it was, I had been a managing editor prior. So he didn't think I'd want to do something like this, but you know, when you got bills and kids and tuition, you humble yourself and say, Hey, um, I need the money. <laughs> right, right. So it was a trial by fire. Things were done at BET very differently than um, had been done in any other company prior. And a big part of that is I was brought on as what they call the project-based employee. Mm-hmm. Um, it's basically your permalancer. Mm. 
But typically the way that's supposed to work is you're an independent contractor, you make your own hours, you have a rate and you have deliverables that you submit. I was functioning as a staff editor, but I didn't have benefits. I didn't have any of those things. And I was getting paid through a subdivision of BET called Cast and Crew. Um, So I had asked about that and he said, well, yeah, we're looking to make conversions, what they call conversions of down the line soon or whatever. I was like, okay, so I'll hang in there and see if I'll work and I'll keep working and hopefully we'll get this whole thing sorted out. And that can just kept getting kicked down the road. Mm -hmm. His boss changed, then he left. And this whole conversion, this whole PBE thing kept getting brought up, but the higher ups just kept kicking that can down the road. And your only your only um, recourse was to quit, which I wasn't ready to do. So I just sucked it up. And now, you know, things have come to a head where the, a lot of the people who were let go this week were in that same pro, um, project-based employee um, group across Viacom, not just at BET, but in Nickelodeon and in a bunch of other um, companies. They had a lot of us who were these contract employees that were still being required to come into the office at certain times and do things. So I don't think it's the last you've heard. You're a lawyer. I'm a, mm-hmm. I'll let you read between the lines, but I don't think folks are going to go quietly with this last round because no. we, were, we, were, we weren't given severance or anything. It was just, okay, peace. Here's where you can file for unemployment. <laughs> and I'm glad you brought this up because I mm-hmm. think a lot of people look, and it's not, let me be 100% honest, it's, it's not just media entertainment. This happens mm-hmm. across I've seen it in every industry where these major conglomerates, like you work there, but you don't work there. Mm-hmm. Um, in that they have these servicing entities and these, and I'm getting into my lawyer mode a little bit, mm-hmm. and these pay entities and the way that it's set up structurally is that you have these whole teams that you said that functioned, they function as an employee, but they don't have the benefits and the right. protections of being an employee. Right. And oftentimes um, you'll be in a situation where you're, you're working for the company into the out, you know, from the outside world, it's like, Oh, it's sexy, right? You, you mm. work for BT, you work for Firecom, yes. you know, work yes. for these organizations, yes. but the reality of it is on paper, you're covering your own benefits. You have no vacation time. You have no access to their 401k match, et cetera. And it, it generally is a situation where they say, Oh, we're going to renew you on three month terms or six months or the, the conversion is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I agree with you in that, the Department of Labor audits are coming. Uh-huh. So that's when the Department of Labor steps in and says, oh, were these people really independent contractors? Did you dictate no. where they had to work from? Did you mm-hmm. dictate the deadlines? Did you control how the job got done? Start asking all these questions. Yep. Um, and I know for a fact that my industry, the lawyers, the litigators of the world are salivating right now because mm. of the lawsuits that are going to come mm. out of um, and the grievances that are going to be filed out of out of this this season, um, for sure, it's it's going to happen. I got into like my lawyer bag, but, <laughs> but um, we'll, talk, we'll talk some more off. Yes, but yeah, it's, for it's sure, be a very interesting year. Absolutely. So I feel like you you've been living this next question um, mm-hmm. your entire career, and you're living it now. But you already know I'm going to ask it anyway. Describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Yeah, I think it was most recently this Wednesday. So Mm -hmm. I'm on the phone getting ready for my interview with Gina Prince-Bythewood. And my boss calls 
And I, she said, do you have a chance to talk? I was like, actually, I'm about to talk to Gina Fitzbride within, in like 10 minutes. She said, well, call me when you, when you get, when you're done. So I, I had this conversation with Gina Prince about love and basketball. And it is one of the best conversations I've had in my time at BET. I've had a lot of good ones, but this one was definitely a great one because we had met at the Urban World Film Festival a couple of years ago. And she remembered me because at the time there was a rumor going around that there was going to be a, a sequel. And she was like, there will never be a sequel to Love and Basketball. I've told that story. It's done. So that was like my first scoop slash win at Watch Loud. Mm-hmm. So fast forward, I said, hey, do you remember when that um, rumor was starting? And she was like, yeah, that was funny. And so we just proceeded to have a great 45 minute conversation about Love and Basketball. I would asked her stuff. She was like, yo, no one's ever asked me that question. I was just I just went in. I was in my bag and got off that call. I said, oh, yeah, let me call my boss back. And I said, hey, how's it going? She's like, yeah, I'm good. I was like, yeah, I just got the phone with Regina. And she was like, yeah, that's great. Uh, I just wanted to let you know that your position has been eliminated. <laughs> oh my gosh, you're on this high. I'm on this high. And I'm like, oh, and I'm not totally surprised because I know that Viacom and CBS have been, that stuff was going to be happening and other things. I wasn't totally surprised put it that way. Um, I just didn't think it was going to happen that day, you know? Um, so in that moment, you can react one of two ways. You can be like, really? Well, bunk this, you know, well, later for y'all. And then you can decide I'm going to just stop working mm-hmm. and just be in your feelings and just say, bump the world. I decided, nope, I'm not going to do this. I just said, okay, I acknowledge what's happening and I'll look out for the emails. I have personal things at the office I need sent to me, blah, blah, blah. Hang, I hung up. I had another interview with two young ladies for a sales campaign that scheduled for the next day. And I said, am I going to cancel these or am I going to do them? And I thought about to myself, I said, these young ladies have nothing to do with my situation. Mm-hmm. They are happy to be profiled for this queen collective filmmaker thing and they're so excited so i said you know what i'm gonna finish those two i'm gonna finish this interview with gina prince bythewood and this is how i'm gonna end my tenure at bet so i spent the next couple days just next next day and a half transcribing writing the article then friday morning i tweeted out for my final piece for BET.com, <laughs> I spoke with Gina Prince Bythewood for the 20th anniversary of Love and Basketball. And I just put it out there just like that. And then people read it and they were like, wait, this is great. But wait a minute, final? Right. So, <laughs> so that was just my way of letting everybody know that I was done at BET. But I wanted to do it in a way that was just, I'm going to go out like Jordan Game 6. This is mm-hmm. my shot. And... I felt like it was the classiest way I could do it versus having a tantrum or not doing the article at all, saying BET doesn't deserve this. I said, I said you know what? Gina interviewed with me. She expected, she expects to see this on BET.com. I'm going to do that because I value my potential relationship with her more than my the, the relationship that ended with BET. So that to me is the most recent, I think, example of me acting. I don't know if that counts as an ordinary day, but it's an ordinary day for everybody these days. Right. Um, And you have to decide who you're going to be in that moment. You know, Um, the ultimate test of the man is where he stands in moments of, you know, 
you know the rest of the quote. I'm, I'm messing it up now. I don't want to misquote Dr. King, but you know, um, challenge and controversy. How who are you going to be in that moment? So I just decided that's how I wanted to act. And I think it turned out well because Gina retweeted it and she was like, I'm, I'm sad to see that you're gone, but I really love this piece. And you asked me things no one else asked. And as a journalist, that is the best thing you can hear. Absolutely. When you got to think about a movie that's been out for 20 years, she's done umpteen quest interviews about this movie. And it's probably told so many different stories in the same way that I still managed to ask her something that she hadn't asked before made me feel great. Right. And I think the way that you handled the last couple of days speaks to your maturity in the industry, which relates um, to my next question. And we're going to let you get out of here soon. But it's so great to just talk to somebody who's been (laughs) in the business for so long. Um, But one of the things that I think with the advent of uh, the ease with which we can create a podcast, create newsletters, create websites, um, one of the outgrowths of that is everybody's a journalist now. Like, and I use journalists in yeah. quotation marks. Like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm the first to tell somebody I have another career. Like this is right, not like right. this is what I do because I'm passionate about it, but it's not the thing that I'm trained in. Mm-hmm. But there are people out there calling themselves writers, uh, calling themselves journalists, media personalities without the training or quite frankly, a lot of times, even the the stylistic ability <laughs> to write. And I hate to say it, but as someone who uh, words, it's very yeah. frustrating to me. Um, right. And the lack of fact checking and all those things. If, if you're someone who digs into the details, like I'm the person who reads liner notes still mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. when you can find them on, online. So I appreciate right. details and I hate when stories have gaps. And, you know, it's like you said, it's just those few lines. But do you think the season that we are in now Right. Do you think there's going to be a separation of the wheat from the tear, meaning that when the industry does rebound, there's been a washing away of all the people who um, don't really have the substance? Or do you think this is going to usher in the reverse, more of just a flood of people just doing whatever they can on the Internet? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think initially you're going to see, to answer your question, initially you are going to see a flood because folks, will, some opportunists will see, oh, everyone's home. This is my chance to just kind of get access to people in a way that hadn't been before. But they're not you're not going to get access if you didn't have it before. Mm-hmm. So I think what we're going to see is people who are still passionate about what they do are going to stay with it. And you're going to find other people who are really in this to just kind of be famous for themselves are going to say this isn't worth it. And they're going to just mm-hmm. do something else. So when this all shakes out and the funny thing is I had this thought pre-COVID, like last year in 2019, when I started to see the contraction where there were just fewer outlets that were paying freelancers, fewer outlets that were paying staffers, but there were just more and more people coming up saying, hey, I'm a podcaster, I'm a YouTuber, I'm a this. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at all the publicists trying to decide who do I give my talent access to for this interview? And they're doing the math and they're saying, okay, who's part of, who has the highest reach? And that's been part of the problem too, is... um, you have a lot of personalities who have benefited from their their followings online who aren't journalists. Mm-hmm. And the the marketing people at wherever, at the label, at the studio, they're trying to get their client and their project in front of as many eyeballs as possible. So if this person has 400,000 followers, but they can't write, they don't care. They will, right. feed, they will feed them the questions. And I know this because I had publicists sending me talking points 
for projects. And they were like, yeah, so if would you be considered, would you consider um, taking this angle with your interview? And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> what part of the game? You're like an OG, like I'm what like, is happening? You're, you're really pitching me an angle right now for an article with your, that's just unheard of. But then I talked to them because it was happening with multiple publicists at different studios. And I, I, I said, what is going on here with this whole pitching angles? And, and they said, listen, Jerry, I understand you've been doing this forever, but we're dealing with a lot of people who don't do what you do and they need guidance. So they we, we deal with a lot of influencers who don't really do a lot of research. So we help them out by giving them an angle to go with for their interviews. And I'm like, wow, this is, this is crazy. (laughs) This is, this is, this is some next level, but I guess you have to adapt because as a publicist and a marketing person, you're held accountable for achieving certain metrics, right? Right. You have to replace um, interviews at X amount of outlets. You have to, did you get them on Good Morning America? Did you get them on this podcast? Did you get them here? Get them there. And all of that counts towards their metrics and their measures of success. So if part of their job is to get Influencer B to interview their talent, but Influencer B doesn't know who DJ Yella is from NWA, (laughs) you got to see. And I had this conversation where I would be on press tours and it was for Straight Outta Compton. And some of the press on the bus didn't know who all the members of NWA were. So, and the rest of us are looking around like, yo, is he for real? <laughs> oh my like, God. is this dude for real? Like, I remember it was, I was with my man, Murph, Keith Murphy, who's been doing this longer than I have. And we were both on the bus. He was covering it for Vibe. And we heard this one person from an outlet, from some news outlet saying, yes, yeah, so he didn't even know how to pronounce DJ Yella. And we just looked at each other like, these are the people they're sending to cover the NWA movie. Like, this is where we're at. <laughs> so oh, my it, goodness. So it's frustrating that some people are given access because of their audience and who, or who they might be down with. And that's the part where I am, you know, reevaluating right now. Because there are a lot of people who work with me because of who I am. But there are lots of people who only worked with me because of where I worked. So right. now it's realigning with the folks who mess with Jerry to see what I want to do next versus the people who were only calling me because I'm the guy at BET. Because now some of them already, and God bless them, they're just doing their jobs. I'm telling them, yeah, this is my last day. And they're like, oh, we feel so sorry for you. I'm sorry. So who's going to be replacing you? Because they want to know already Uh. who the person is they should be pitching to. And I honestly didn't have an answer because according to my phone call, my position had been eliminated. So I don't even know if there's going to be a person that you can pitch um, at BET for what you want moving forward. They might find somebody. I don't know how they're going to handle it. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it's 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 a crazy, crazy time. So I'm just internally chuckling because <laughs> moving and shaking in the last decade that I've been in New York <laughs> is just the level. And I'm, I mean, it's not just here, but like the opportunists and oh my gosh, people aligning themselves with you because of what they think you can do for them. I've, right. I have not quite gotten used to that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I've been here 11 years now. It's just crazy to me. Now, I learned it when I left when um, when Watch Loud closed. That was the last mm-hmm. blog I was running before I got to BET. And when that shut down and that year between when I was just freelancing and just kind of treading water. I, there were people who I just stopped hearing from, Mm -hmm. you know, 
because I wasn't at some place that where they could get um, placement. Mm-hmm. And other people who sincerely reached out and texted me were like, yo, how are you doing, Jay? How are you holding up? And I love them to death for that because they weren't, I couldn't do anything for them. Right. But they were invested in my mental health. So then when I was in a position to help them again, they were some of the first people whose emails and calls I answered. Because I remember when I didn't have anything, you were the person that reached out. So yeah, it matters to me. So I know you've seen a lot, obviously, Mm -hmm. in this business. What is a crazy industry story that you have that you can actually share? Oh my gosh. Um, One of my favorite covers was my Ludicrous cover for The Source. Flew down to Atlanta and we did the photo shoot. Long, arduous thing. Afterward, the shoot's over and I'm thinking, okay, I interviewed him a little bit at the shoot, but the best stuff is away from the photo shoot. You get color when you actually spend time with the artist. So we went out to eat and we're drinking, we're eating, and he's with his, his manager, Shaka, really great dude. And they decide, okay, what are we doing now? He's like, um, I can't remember what we did first. No, we, we, we went to his house first, which was really cool. And he was going through his mail, and he got a mail from his boy, his old DJ, Darren Ransom. And he said, yo, you got to put this in the article. I was like, okay. Nah, but seriously, because he's locked up. But if they see him in the source, that would be a really good look for him. And I was just like, so tell me the story. But he told me the story about them, which made it more compelling. I'm like, oh, this is your first DJ? And he showed me a picture of the two of them. Mm-hmm. And it was really dope. So I didn't have an issue putting it in the, in the article because it was relevant to, to his story as an artist. So after we leave his house, he said, we're going to the strip club. I knew <laughs> so, that was coming. I knew it was oh coming. Oh, my God. <laughs> so you ever see Players Club? Yes, which now when is they, on Netflix. And I did watch it, and it didn't age well at all. But anyway, age, <laughs> I have a separate Players Club story, but yeah. Um, did not age well. That scene where they walk in and they, the money bell rings <laughs> is a real thing. <laughs> It was a real thing. Oh, my God. We walked in, and I don't know if it was a silent alarm that said Ludacris <laughs> is in the building, but out of the corners of the club, women just started pouring out of the club in all, from all directions. Tall, short, dark, light. They, they brought out everybody for this man. So we go back, back in the room, VIP. I'm sitting there, and I'm watching this whole thing go down, and they, they, they're coming to him. And he's directing them to me because I'm the writer, right? So, like, make the writer happy, you know? Go to, <laughs> go to the writer. I'm just looking at like, oh, my goodness. So I'm having a ball. I'm looking at Shaka. They're throwing the money and doing all this stuff. And, and it was so funny how abruptly it was like a finger snap. It was like a Thanos snap. All of a sudden, the lights went up. And the women started filing out. Ludacris had turned the faucet off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. As quickly as they had come out, they left just as quickly as soon as they said, all right, we're done. We're going to the next spot. And it was just so funny to see how on a dime, how things, how quickly things turned mm-hmm. just at the snap of a finger. They, the ladies all left. The room was empty. Not a dollar was left on the floor. And then Ludacris said, you had a good time? I was like, yeah, man, thank you. He said, all right. They went their separate ways, so I guess to a whole nother separate party. And I went back to my hotel. And then we we flew back to New York on his private plane and we finished the interview on his plane. So that whole 
interview was just one of my favorites. But that that night in the strip, to be in an ATL strip club with Ludacris right. is really um, the only thing that topped that. And I don't know if, how much time you have. I just remember this now. I was in Miami when the Miami Heat won the NBA championship. Mm-hmm. I was there that oh my night gosh. because I was at Scratch Magazine and I had gone down for very um, non-sports reasons. His DJ, DJ Irie, not his DJ, the Miami Heat DJ, DJ Irie, does a celebrity golf tournament every year to raise funds. It's for charity. He invited me down there because he wanted me to cover it for the magazine. I had no idea that the Miami Heat were going to win the championship. Wow. So it was just really wonderful, crazy timing that the day I landed to do for the golf tournament was the day of the parade that night. The, well, it was the day of the parade. So that night, Irie, as the Miami Heat's DJ, is partying his ass off. Of course. I am his guest. <laughs> So every club he goes to, I'm going to. So I'm in one club and I have a rainbow assortment of wristbands. I don't know how many different VIP wristbands I had on on each arm. Pat Riley is on stage with Young Jock doing the motorcycle dance. And Shaq is waving his hands. It was a sight to behold. Like, you got to understand, to be in Miami in a nightclub when they win their first championship right is insane you can't replicate that moment for your entire life i don't know how much i drank that night how many different clubs i i stopped clubbing after that because what, what time did you finally go to bed i don't remember i don't remember and then you're you're in south beach so i think i was either at the lows one of those four-star hotels on top of that it was an amazing night. That was that was so much fun. But I didn't plan. You couldn't if you had planned to be down there. It wouldn't have happened because your plane ticket would have cost too much. You would right. never have gotten a hotel. But because I was going down there already to to cover this charity golf tournament, I ended up partying with the Miami Heat at <laughs> the championship party. And now so, you reminded me how big Young Jock was at yes, the point. <laughs> yes. Yes. Pat Riley doing the motorcycle. Oh my gosh. So yeah, that those are two of my crazy industry stories. But since you mentioned that you have another players club story, oh I, well, I can't I'm gonna get I'm gonna get roasted by my listeners if I don't circle back to that. <laughs> no, well, my 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 best friend and I um took our wives, our future then girlfriends, on a date to see Players Club. Oh gosh. Now, understanding my brain, I'm thinking of Def Jam's How to Be a Player. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking this is going to be some kind. I don't know what I thought I was going to see, but I saw Jamie Foxx <laughs> and I see Bernie Mac. And I'm like, oh, strippers, this could be fun. Oh, my God. You want to talk about the worst possible uh, movie <laughs> you can pick for a first date? It was a cool. first date. No, well, I knew my wife from college, right? It was okay. Pretty, so we, it wasn't like her first impression of me, but this was the first movie. We, it was a double date, just like that me and my boy went on with our, his wife now and my wife now. We went to the old Green Acre Cinemas over here in Queens to see Players Club, pre-metal detectors. And it was just, we walked out of that theater just like, because you've seen Players Club and you know yes. the happens in Players Club. It was not a family fun, it was not a date movie. Not and a date movie at all. The least, 
the fact that they did not break up with us after that <laughs> is just a testament to I don't know what. But yeah, that's my other players club story. I you, mean, mar- you married a real one. I did. <laughs> I really did because she re- she would have been well within her rights to say, "All right, we're not dating anymore because you took me to see goddamn players club." That's like taking somebody to go to Hooters on the first date, you know. <laughs> We've been to Hooters since, but not as a first date because their wings are really good. But, they do um, have good wings. I, I will go sign <laughs> that for sure. <laughs> but yeah, that's the other Players Club story. Dude, that Players Club is not a date. Don't do it for yourself. Absolutely not. <laughs> so I feel like this has been such a great conversation. We didn't even get into Nod Factor. We, um, <laughs> we're going to come. I, I would love to come back because yes. I am going to get I'm going to dust that off. My boy, Daytuan, the editor-in-chief of Vibe, has been on me to to bring Nod Factor back. It's not that it went away. I just stopped updating it because I was mm-hmm. really busy. The last interview I did for it was two years ago with a producer named Tall Black Guy, who's really amazing. Check him out if you can. And I was just looking at all the stuff. I'm like, damn, I really need to to do some more new interviews. So I definitely have some stuff in the works. I have an um, interview with Robert Glasper in the can that I did for the photograph that I'm going to put Ugh. up there. Love Robert. I'm a, I'm a certified stand when it comes to Robert Glasper. So. I'll, 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 definitely, <laughs> I'll definitely tag you when that goes up. Okay. And um, so, yes, that's one of several things um, that I'm going to resurrect and put some time into because I still love the producer culture and DJ culture at heart. And clearly there's an interest from fans because you're looking at all the battles that have been taking place. Um, if you if you do it the right way, you can, you can, I think there's definitely interest again. Because everyone keeps asking me, bring Scratch back, bring Scratch back. And I'm like, well, I can't bring Scratch back because I don't own Scratch. Right. But I can do something to serve that audience for sure. So anything else you want to mention that's on the horizon? Um, not that I can speak to yet, but I okay. do have part of why I'm doing more and more podcasts is I definitely will have at least one, maybe two of my own that I'll mm-hmm. finally start because I'm learning how the different tools that people are using to do theirs. And, um, I have some commitments from folks to do interviews. So it's just a matter of me learning some of the other nuts and bolts as far as uploading stuff to networks. Um, and actually dusting off my my audio editing chops. Mm-hmm. I was a big, cool edit, audacity, audio editor guy um, when I was at Scratch, but I haven't used those skills in a while. So, um, But you never really forget. So I'm going to get back into that, and you'll be hearing my wonderful voice across multiple platforms. <laughs> oh, I'm looking forward to it, because I'm like, yeah. I wish we had three more hours. But anyway. <laughs> um, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. So where can people find you on social media? Um, at JL Barrow. Um, mm-hmm. That's at Twitter and Instagram. Those are the two best places. Uh, I don't know if I'm on any, but I'm not. I don't do TikToks, but I'm on TikTok just mm-hmm. to, because everybody sends me links. Sure. And I like to watch them in the app. So I'm there, but I ha- I don't make TikToks. I'm just not that dude. But um, but yeah, Twitter and Instagram at JL Barrow, the best places to reach me. And notfactor.com. We know that you're revive- reviving that, but it's yeah. still there. The, the it's still there. It, yeah. I, I, I've been paying the bills. I've been keeping the lights on to keep mm-hmm. the URL up. Um, it is definitely um, years worth of content there. Um, if you want to go check it out now, I have lots of stories going back to 2008 on that site. You can go check out my work there. Um, and yeah. Awesome. But listen, uh, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this. You got to come back. 
I will. I will definitely. As you get into your next chapter, we appreciate someone who's a titan of industry coming on our little show. I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> Thank you. I definitely <laughs> did. Enjoyed Thank it. you so much. Um, to our listeners, you know, we're all about those who have the inside track and are willing to be uh, transparent about what they've seen and what that they, what they've experienced. So please go out and check Jerry L. Barrow on the internet. Check his, obviously there's a ton of content. He's been, this, been in this industry a long time. Um, you know, we love a good backstory. No, you know, we love a good interview. So check the work that he's doing. Make sure you follow him online. Make sure you like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. And we're in an unprecedented time doing these virtual interviews. That's not what we're known for, but thank you for rocking with us. And if you are just joining, welcome to the December 26er family. And with that, Remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.